Hello, and welcome to the Pragmatic Live podcast series, where we tackle the biggest challenges facing today's product management and marketing professionals with some of the best minds in the industry. I'm Rebecca Calajaris, Vice President of Marketing at Pragmatic Marketing, and your host for this episode. Often on this podcast, we dive into the hard skills a product manager needs to succeed, how to do roadmaps, how to price, how to build personas, but there's a whole other side to what makes a product manager successful, the soft skills, and they are often as critical as the hard skills, for a plan is just a plan unless you can sell it to a group who can put it into action. So today, helping us tackle some of these soft skills is Brian Kelly. Brian has been an executive responsible for product teams for decades. He's found no shortage of information then about the soft skills that enable teams to effectively interact with each other. But finding that information, it wasn't the problem, right? Putting those skills into practice was the real challenge. So he's developed some simple tools that blend neuroscientific research, not things you often hear together, simple and neuroscientific research, but he's <laughs> going to show us how that and psychology and practical know-how combines to really help product teams regularly practice these skills. Welcome, Brian. Thanks so much, Rebecca. I'm a, I'm a fan of the podcast. I've been listening for at least a couple of years. I think that's about when you guys started it, maybe yeah. longer, but uh, definitely very, very glad to be here today. Awesome. We're thrilled to have you. So this is a big topic, Brian. Can you tell me a little bit more? I know you really, we were going to dive into sort of the key mistakes that product managers make when they collaborate and how can you avoid them? So tell me kind of why that topic in particular resonates for you. Sure. Well, you know, there's so much talk right now in, in the last year and obviously longer, but it seems like it's kind of reached a fever pitch um, in recent months where, I mean, you can't look on LinkedIn or Medium where people are talking about things that are relevant to product management and soft skills is always kind of a common thread or a common theme, no matter what the, the topic is. It's always woven into these types of things that are important. And what I've found through my experience is that it's not so much about us understanding the soft skills. It's about being able to take what we've learned and put it into practice. So with these mistakes that I'd love to kind of walk through today during our conversation, these are the things that through brain science, neuroscience that has occurred in the last 10 years, there's been a lot of accelerated development and research in this area, we can learn about these mistakes that we often make. And by learning what those are, we can then be empowered to start to do something about it. Now, some of the most intense emotional responses in product management really occur when five key areas of social experience collide. So I'm going to talk a little bit about those five key areas in just a minute. But the thing I want to point out is that we intentionally or unintentionally trigger these social areas in our team members. So sometimes like we do it in, on purpose, you know, we're trying to be uh, antagonistic or other times we're not really aware of it. So first, before we get into what those examples are, I kind of wanted to provide a little illustrative story based on my own experiences, um, if you think that'll be helpful. Oh, always helpful. Stories are the best way to learn. All right, perfect. So as a software executive, I once oversaw a team that was working to bring a solution to market. 
And within this group were two specific individuals who did not work well together. In fact, um, one of the, the, the individuals on this team who was tasked with leading the effort didn't value the experience or the background, even the education of this other team member. I'm not really sure w- what the deal was there, but there was just some some animosity or, or um, you know, the, just not an appreciation of what this person brought to the table. So what occurred during this this launch and in the process of, of working towards that end goal was one of the, the team lead continually pointed out their colleagues weaknesses. You know, they didn't set clear expectations around work assignments. They didn't trust this person on the team to make decisions. They were constantly kind of micromanaging uh, the, the process. They didn't really take an interest in them as a person. It was just like, this is just my coworker. I don't really care about anything else related to this person, who they are, what they're interested in. And then at the end, when the product launch was not really that successful, they ended up blaming this person. So as the individual, the executive that was in charge of this, I was just, I was like, what happened here? And I started thinking about it. I was like, you know, these situations happen all the time within teams. We see it time and time again. We've experienced ourselves uh, maybe we've been the perpetrator. Maybe we've been the victim. But regardless, we chalk it up to, oh, that's just coworkers and how coworkers get along or don't get along. But I felt like there was something deeper there. And so I set out to discover ways that I could help my entire team avoid this in the future. And that's what led me to some of this scientific uh, research on the brain. So we could get into a very, very complex explanation of the brain, which actually is the most complex thing we know in the universe. But there's a much simpler way to explain what's going on. So to set this up, and then we'll dive right into some of these mistakes, the Neuro Leadership Institute, which is a great organization, started about 10 years ago. They published a journal in 2008. And in that issue, it outlined a framework that illuminates how we can improve the way we work with others. And this framework is called the SCARF model. Yep, that's SCARF, S-C-A-R-F. And it was developed by a gentleman named Dr. David Rock and defines five key areas of social experience that our brain is constantly evaluating at a subconscious level. The first one is status. The second one is certainty. The third one is autonomy, the fourth is relatedness, and then the fifth one is fairness. So that's SCARF, S-C-A-R-F. So that is really kind of the crux that we can start to evaluate some of these mistakes that we, we make, and it's the filter that we can look at some of these things. Now, one other important thing that they explained in the journal when they talked about the SCARF model was that the brain minimizes threats and maximizes rewards. It's how it thinks, it's how it organizes incoming information. So at a very subconscious base level, anything that we experience or observe or see, our brain is saying, is this a threat? Is it a reward? If it's a threat, I want to minimize it. If it's a reward, I want to maximize it. So on autopilot, at any given moment, our brain can be in either of those two states, minimizing threats or maximizing rewards. And, of course, logically, 
which state we're in has a dramatic impact on how we work with others. In fact, our, our ability to work with others. So an example of that would be a perceived threat to our status um, activates the brain in the same way as an actual life-threatening situation. So think about that for a moment. Many everyday conversations mirror this example. When we feel threatened, we often will defend pretty weak arguments because our brain at a subconscious level believes literally that our life is at risk. Um, I've, I've experienced it. I still, even at home uh, with my wife, often find myself in this situation where I, I'm like subconsciously feeling threatened and so I'm arguing something that's really like the dumbest thing ever. Um, and we do that with our coworkers. We do that with our spouses and, and those closest to us. So I always find um, that um, when someone like brings an idea to me for my area, right, I'm always super receptive. I love to get feedback, right? What I find is that when it's something that I am beating myself up for, for not doing, right, that I think, oh my gosh, that's something I know I should do. It's on my list. I haven't been able to get to it. That when someone brings that idea, I will sometimes like argue why it's a bad idea. Right? Yeah. Because I feel threatened because part of me is like, no, I should have had this done and I didn't. And then, and now someone's pointing it out. And then I'm like halfway through, you're like, but, but I like this idea. Right? <laughs> it's on my list. <laughs> yes. It, it, it is crazy how, how our brain works that way. And, and sometimes we just, we don't realize that it's, we dig our heels in for, for quite oftentimes the dumbest reasons. And, um, it's because we're feeling like we're threatened. So that leads me into the first mistake. Um, you know, you, you gave a great example there uh, talking about kind of your personal experience. And that's we often attack the status of a coworker, um, of others on our product team, whether they're, they're on the actual product management team or whether they're stakeholders um, as part of the cross-functional group that's working together to bring a product to market or to work on a new release, whatever it is, this is something that we need to think about. So, of course, it's incredibly easy to threaten somebody's status when we offer advice or we give them feedback or we provide instruction, which ironically are all activities that are essential to product management. But nothing puts someone on the defensive faster than that very thing. And so it shuts down collaboration, it cuts off communication. Um, and so then the question is, well, okay, that makes sense, but how do we get around that? Like, what can we do? And surprisingly, it's, it's really simple. Dale Carnegie, um, you know, many folks may be familiar with Dale Carnegie's famous book, How to Win Friends and Influence People. He wrote it almost 100 years ago. And the, the information, the wisdom that he's, he's captured in that book really still resonates today as strongly as it did 100 years ago. And he was quoted as saying that the deepest principle in human nature is the craving to be appreciated. And then he went on to say, become genuinely and actively interested in other people and show it. So right there, that's the the thing that we need to use in order to counteract that, that situation where we attack somebody's status. So our team members will be a lot more open to when we give them candid advice, when we've previously shown appreciation for what they contribute. We've gone out of our way to 
uh, understand what it is that they bring to the table and then how we can let them know like, hey, like I really appreciate the insights that you share. Oftentimes it's like not how I see it, but I recognize that your perspective is something that's that's needed in this process as we work together as a team. And then when you've made that investment, it's a whole lot easier to come around and provide, you know, that feedback, that instruction, that advice to them. So, of course, it sounds simple and it is simple, but the actual implementation of it is what takes the work. So that's number one. Yeah, and I think one of the important notes on that is that it's, you have to take a genuine interest, right? We've all seen the people who um, liked, who project as if they do, right? They, they go through some of the motions, but people are smart and they can tell the intention behind it. And so it's not about placating or saying the right things. It's about genuinely looking at them and seeing the value and seeing and appreciating the differences, but that, but doing it sincerely. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, even myself and, and all the varied experiences I've had in my career, there's been those individuals that are just like diametrically opposed to how I see things. And it's tough. It's, it's tough to, to accept that, you know what, I don't have all the answers. The way that I see things may not necessarily be the most, you know, insightful and to have those additional perspectives that are even sometimes opposite to yours. Um, if you can open yourself up to that and, and not worry too much about being right, all of a sudden a lot of great things can happen through that collaboration and that open communication. So that's the first thing is really thinking about status and are we attacking status and if we are, what can we do to circumvent that? And it really is rooted in that genuine, sincere interest. Now, the second mistake that we make um, in product team circles is that <laughs> I describe it as messing with somebody's certainty. So the way that they feel secure about a decision or a direction. Of course, again, in the profession that we are in, changing product requirements or direction and strategy on the fly, uh, that's a regular thing. Like we have to be flexible, we have to pivot, we have to take new data and make different decisions. But it will flush certainty right out of the brain of our coworkers if we pull the rug out from underneath them. They thought we were headed down a certain path and all of a sudden things are different. Now, the reason why this happens is that it causes stress because the brain has to use more resources to process this unfamiliar information that's coming in. So again, there's another simple way that we can reduce a feeling of uncertainty in coworkers when these things occur. And it really comes down to proactively involving them in the decision-making process and revamping those plans. So if you think about the different stakeholders, maybe it's, it's uh, you know, someone from engineering, someone from design, someone in marketing, uh, and even the sales team, if you need to change something, just making that change and announcing it to the rest of the stakeholders, that typically does not get received very well. But if you can involve them in this process and say, here's some new data that, that has surfaced, um, you know, here's what we're thinking, 
would love to get everybody's feedback. And then, you know, our recommendation is this, but let's talk about it as a group that gives people a sense of clarity and alignment because it increases their certainty. You brought them into the process. You uh, pulled them in before anything was kind of set in stone. And it's such a subtle little thing, but it makes a tremendous difference. And even though things don't really ever happen as planned, the pure and simple act of setting clear expectations together as a team instills confidence. And, you know, that, that type of thing is something that we often don't think about. We just kind of make decisions and then we dictate, here's the change. Um, maybe we were explain a little bit about it, but oftentimes we don't think about just stopping for a moment, explaining what, what the data is and why we think, you know, we need to make this recommendation and getting that, that feedback and getting that involvement. It takes a little more work and a little bit more time, but it pays off in the long run because everybody has, has been able to voice, uh, their opinion, their involvement and be like, okay, this is the direction that we're going collectively as a group. We decided on this. So that's number two. Um, number three, as far as these mistakes that we make is that we don't take the time to build or nurture trust. This is a big one. So if you think about it like this for a long, long time in the history of the human race, tribes have helped, um, provide security and, you know, survival of the human race. And through that evolutionary process, we as humans have naturally come to trust those who are inside of our tribe and we distrust those who are not part of the tribe. Scientists call it relatedness. And so when we trust each other because of our relation, because we are related, information is able to flow pretty freely back and forth and as a result, collaboration increases. But we often forget that when we take time to share things like personal stories, it helps bond relationships. When we talk about the things that we value that are, are not necessarily relevant to the role or the job or the field, but are just you know things that in everyday life mean something to us, it allows us to connect with those that we work with. Of course, it's very easy to do that with somebody who likes the same band or recording artist. Maybe they like the same uh, taco joint around the corner. But what about the person that comes from a different culture and even maybe a different subculture who you know, seems like they don't have anything in common with you? That's the hard thing. And even harder is what if it's somebody who's really opposing, you know, has opposing views or beliefs than you do, whether it's, you know, anything outside of work, whether it's things inside of work, that doesn't matter. But we always encounter these individuals that are very much, they're, they're different. They're opposite from us. They see things incredibly differently. Well, that's where we should start to intentionally build and nurture trust by learning about them by understanding, you know, taking the time to understand what makes them tick, what are the things that they value, why do they value those things? And you do that through sharing stories and understanding where they're coming from and ultimately finding common ground, common experiences. We're all human beings 
plain and simple. And while there are differences in the culture that we came from, the background that we came from, what have you, we all share a common experience and we can find those things. So that's, it's one of those, it's obvious, right? It makes sense. But how often do we go out of our way to try and connect intentionally with someone who may not be that, you know, that, I guess, aligned seemingly with who we are, or what our values are. So that's a big one. Oh, that's a super good point. Let's dig into that a little bit more right after this quick break. Hello, Pragmatic Live listeners. You know we're passionate about product management, and we've been training professionals like you since 1993. If you're ready to increase product sales, reduce time to market, and improve customer satisfaction, register to experience a Pragmatic training session today at pragmaticmarketing.com slash buy. Everybody finds it easier when there's something to pull, pull people together with, right? That's why sports fans in a, in a bar have such camaraderie. That's why if you can find a common book or a, a love of food, it's a great uh, bridge across what feels like a lot of differences. Exactly. And then you start to realize, you know what, this, this person is not very different from me. Um, and a lot, it, it, there's actually some very interesting uh, studies that have been done on even uh, cultures that have been, you know, warring against each other. And when they had an opportunity to find common ground, that all of a sudden it just dramatically changed the, the dynamic of those two social groups um, in a way that was almost mind-boggling. And it was because they thought they had nothing in common, and when they realized they did have actually things that were in common, um, it, it just shifted the, the whole relationship and the whole dynamic of, of them warring against each other. Um, I can't remember the exact study. Um, I wish I could provide that reference for you guys, but um, that is something that... that is definitely provides evidence for the the principle that we're talking about here. So, yeah, I mean, it, in you gave some great examples, Rebecca, and I think, interestingly, I've seen a lot of people in in recent years kind of bond over uh, uh, something is it's kind of crazy as like a Netflix binge mm. series type of thing, right? Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's like everybody could talk for hours about, you know, some particular show that they've watched on Netflix and, and over a weekend watch the entire, you know, like season or whatever. And and, and people just it, it opens up the door. It's crazy. It unlocks something that people can be like, yes, like I love that show and here's why I love it. And then all of a sudden, then it's easier to talk about the next thing and the next thing. And so it, it, this is a big one. Now, the next one here um, that I've got on my list of mistakes that I think is important to talk about is how we jeopardize autonomy. So when you work on a product team, it naturally reduces your sense of independence. It's just the nature of being part of a team. So then the question is, well, what can we do about managing all the different personalities and the processes in our role as a, as a product manager? And I think this one it kind of connects to the others. And that's the, the possible threats to autonomy, the things that, that will trigger somebody to feel like they don't have that freedom of choice is easily offset 
when we make investments in the previous things we've talked about, when we, um, you know, give them sincere appreciation, show them that appreciation and that genuine interest in who they are as a person. So we increase their status. Um, when we involve them in, in the decision-making process and we increase their certainty and then also in the relatedness, when we build that bond and strengthen that bond with them as a coworker, um, and as a human being, when you do that, all of a sudden they start to feel like, you know what? I'm part of an appreciated, you know, I, I feel appreciated and, and part of this team I'm involved and that fosters an environment where people know that their voice is heard. So when you get in those situations where you're working together as a team and everybody feels like, you know what, we're not, we're not going to go the direction that I feel like we should go, but I've been able to express that and I've been acknowledged and, you know, I feel like my voice has been heard. Then they don't feel like you know, options have been taken off the table and nobody's listening to them or nobody's con uh, concerned or understanding what it is that they're trying to communicate in that decision-making process. It makes it so much easier for somebody to feel like, you know what, I am part of a team. I'm not being uh, dictated what to do. I'm able to have that voice and I'm able to share that voice. And it really uh, helps keep that door open, that, that communication, that flow of communication to where they can feel like they've got that voice, which is huge. Now, I'll give you one more. We, we could go on and on and on, but this is the last one that I think is really important. And that's that we're not fair with our coworkers. Now, nothing's more unfair than a double standard because, um, you know, I like to think of it as actions, they really do speak louder than words. And so there's a very, very distinct difference between saying one thing and doing another. We all know this. We all see it. We all experience it. Somebody says something, but they do something that's, that's the exact opposite of that. So one way to think about circumventing this issue of, of coming across or having the perception of being unfair is to think about how you can be consistent and transparent in your communication so that it matches the actions that you're actually um, producing or, you know, the actions that you're taking, because that is what will safeguard a fair product team atmosphere. The problem, and maybe it's not so much a problem, but I think it's a, it's a struggle, is that this requires a level of self-awareness that just does not come very easily. The other thing is that it also demands a lot of humility on our part. So admitting when we're wrong, when we've made some type of an error, or maybe even when we've miscommunicated something, it's much more difficult to do that and to acknowledge it and to speak that to your team uh, than like shifting the blame onto somebody else, <laughs> which is usually typically the default what happens. Um, so in, in doing this, um, you know, we'll be able to positively trigger a sense of fairness among our colleagues because, again, they'll know when Brian says something, he does it, he follows through. And when he doesn't, he acknowledges it and, you know, brings it up to the group, uh, apologizes for it, like whatever that looks like in that specific situation. Um, it matches what I've said, what I've, what I've kind of said is the expectation.
And doing that, as I said, is, is very difficult. It takes a, a little bit of swallowing your pride. Um, and some people, they do it a little bit better. They have a, a little bit more of a natural ability to it. Others, it's not impossible, but it does take that proactive effort to say, you know what, I made a mistake. Or, you know what, I was wrong when I said this. And, you know, this is what I'm going to do about it. That will really help create that sense, that atmosphere of fairness. And I think it's a it's a important learning piece to realize that that kind of admitting mistakes is a strength and is seen as a strength by peers and team and not a weakness. It can feel like, oh, they're going to think less of me or I'm showing that I'm weak. And it, it really often comes across as a way to strengthen people. I agree. And if you think about it like this, Rebecca, every one of these mistakes that I've just walked through in our conversation, it works in reverse, right? So others trigger this in us, even though we might be triggering it in them. And so when we think about something like you just said, that's our status. Like we feel like our status is under attack or we feel like our status might be compromised. And our tendency is to avoid that, right? Our brain is saying, minimize the threat. Uh, you know, we don't want to reduce status. But in this situation, it pays dividends because in doing so, in, in, in temporarily uh, um, reducing your status as a result of admitting that wrong or, you know, sharing uh, kind of, uh, here, you know, here's why I miscommunicated it. It's very humbling, but for the other individual, they start, they, it actually raises your status. It's a little counterintuitive, but they're like, you know what, Brian went out of his way to share this. And I'm so glad that he did because I, I can understand what, you know, he's saying that this was something he thought was going to happen and it didn't happen that way. He made an error. Um, great. You know, that open communication just continues the flow of that collaborative spirit that oftentimes just gets shut down because we all dig our heels in. So, you know, when I think about these five mistakes that we've walked through and I'll quickly recap them for you guys real quick. Um, you know, I know I've made them. I've, I've experienced this. I've seen others on my team experience. Maybe you've done the same. I'm sure you have. And sometimes it's just one of these. Now think about if you, if you start to trigger, two of these or three of these all at once. Um, it's really the thing that starts to create those situations, that atmosphere where people are not sharing information. People don't want to work together. People are arguing, people are fighting. Um, sometimes it's more passive. Sometimes it's a little bit more aggressive, but if you can take these brain-based insights that we've just walked through, that's the first step. They're, they're super helpful having that understanding. But knowing how to circumvent them in the future and some of the ways that I, I've kind of mapped out how you can avoid them, that's empowering. That's the thing that I would encourage you to really think about. So as a quick recap, um, here they are again. The first one is we attack their status. And the way that we can avoid that is to show appreciation. And in the moment, that doesn't do you very good. But making that investment, going out of your way proactively to show appreciation to those that you work very closely with, that will help you circumvent that, that problem. So if you do something that does attack their status, they'll f actually feel like, you know what, 
Brian's being candid with me. He's wanting to help me versus wanting to attack me. The second one is that we mess with their certainty. And the way that we can get around that one is to involve stakeholders in the decision-making process. It doesn't matter um, you know, what their level is in the organization. If they're involved in the project, if they need to have a voice in the project, um, the product, whatever it is that you're, you're specifically working in collaboration with, involve them. It goes a long way. They feel like they're part of it. And um, when you make a change, they're right there with you. They don't feel like the rug's being taken out from underneath them. The third one is that we don't build or nurture trust. And the way that we do this is to go out of our way to find common experiences. Even more, I would encourage you to do that with those that you feel like you don't have any common experience with. Because again, it's easy for the, the coworkers that come from the same background or have the same education. But for those that don't, um, you can find common ground. Believe me, it's there. The fourth one is that we jeopardize autonomy. And the way to circumvent that is to increase somebody's status, to increase their certainty, to increase their relatedness. So the first three that we walk through, those are all interconnected. And when you, when you make those investments, it will increase their, their feeling of, I'm part of the team, I'm in an environment that I, that I know my voice will be heard in, so therefore I feel like the choices haven't been ripped off the table from me. And then the final one is that we're not fair. Um, and the way to, to make sure that we're, we're ensuring that we're fair is to match your communication with your actions. And when there's a disconnect between those two, admit it and apologize or um, acknowledge what went wrong and people will respect you for it. It's a powerful, powerful situation uh, to be able to turn that negative um, decision, that bad decision, that error, whatever, into something positive. So hopefully that helps. Um, you know, Rebecca, one last thing I'd love to share is around this idea of practice. We talked a little bit about it at the, at the very beginning, and this is what led me to explore a lot of these things. This is why I'm so passionate about it, is I, in my research as a result of this experience and the story that I shared at the top of the podcast was that I was looking for answers on how to help my team avoid the problems in the future. And what I found was there's a lot of information out there about soft skills. Do this, don't do that, you know, become a better communicator, um, you know, respect people, have empathy, blah, blah, blah. That's the stuff we hear all the time. But how do we put them into practice? And so I found something very interesting. There was some, like an extensive body of research done by a gentleman named Dr. Todd Maddox. And this research suggests that the human brain contains at least two distinct systems for learning. Now, this is important. The first system is called the cognitive skills system. And this is designed and optimized for learning hard skills, the technical things that we need to know in our job, the knowledge, the understanding. But the second system is what's called the behavioral skills system. And this is the part of our brain that's optimized for learning soft skills, the things that aren't so easy to wrap our heads around, that are a little soft and squishy. Now, 
In his research, Dr. Maddox suggests that soft skills can only be applied through behavioral skills learning. Makes sense, right? So that means we can't just say, okay, we understand this. I got, I, I get what soft skills is. Brian makes sense in all the points that he's made. And then you move on. No, we've got to do something more. We've got to have an intentional approach. And this is something that most of us never do. And that's because we've lacked training tools that directly exercise this behavioral skill system. So to close out this conversation, and as you think about these five mistakes and how to avoid them, I would invite you to think about like which one of these seems most familiar to you? Which one have you been the perpetrator of? Which one have you been the victim of? Maybe both. And when you think through this, and you, you know this information, how might you respond or act differently in the future with certain situations that arise with coworkers using these particular skills? And after you take a couple minutes to think about this, you know, maybe hit pause on the podcast right now, sit down and write one, just one way that you can begin practicing what you've learned and identified. And once you've done that, once you've just taken a couple minutes to think about it, to reflect, then I would suggest that you go and implement it right now today. Keep it at the forefront of your mind and just think about that one change that you can make today that will help you begin to move towards opening that collaboration and that communication with those that you might have wrestled with in the past. So um, there, that, that's one really simple way that I would I would encourage you to think about this information that you've just consumed during the course of the show. But if you would like to get additional help with practicing, I'm soon releasing a free toolkit titled Softworks, Practicing the Human Side of Product Management. Uh, it's a toolkit that includes a premium podcast series, uh, which is really fun. Um, it's a dynamic short series that's got four parts to it. And then there's a companion workbook that comes along with it that'll help you jumpstart your soft skills practice today. So there's some quick, simple exercises uh, that you can walk through. So if you'd like to check that out, go to softworkspractice.com. Awesome. Yeah. All right, Brian, thank you very much. And you gave lot, people lots of stuff to think about. Uh, it's been a pleasure having you on and I hope you join us again. Well, thank you. I, I uh, really enjoyed it and uh, hope that this was helpful for everybody. A lot of this is such simple common sense, right? But sometimes it's those simple things that we forget about, um, especially in the harriedness of the jobs that we have and the pressures that we have. Um, but just taking that little bit of time, that little bit of effort to keep these things front and center in your mind and knowing what's happening, to think about that scarf model and to then respond proactively to how you know you're engaging with your colleagues it'll make a tremendous world of difference so thanks again rebecca all right thank you brian and thanks everyone for listening that does it for today's episode and don't forget to join us next week when we tackle another great topic designed to help you elevate your product your company and your career